So we're going to be uh, starting a new series today, and uh, a lot of it has to do with wall. And so uh, we're going to be referencing uh, uh, this wall quite a bit. Uh, it was funny uh, during the welcome, during the hug and howdy time, you know, the wall was up here. So the kids are, what's going on? What are we doing with the wall? What are we doing with that? And uh, Maggie, sweet Maggie came up to me and she said, Mr. Adam, I know why there's a wall. And I was like, okay, Maggie, why? tell me. And she said, well, Jesus built a wall to keep the bad people out. And I said, that's right. Mm-hmm. I remember that story somewhere. Great job. Um, the teenagers' hearts are, are broken because they had to put together these bricks this morning and, uh, and build our wall for us uh, <laughs> multiple times. Um, you know what? Uh, just, to, just an interesting side note. When they first saw the bricks in our teen class this morning and were like, what? We're building a wall. Do you know what their first reference was? you know what they immediately thought? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that, I think just as a, as a kind of a view of our world and our society, as, as soon as they saw this, they, they thought about trouble. I can assure you, uh, Mexico did not pay to build this wall. Uh, I, these pieces didn't, these probably came from Japan or China or somewhere else. So, um, we're going to talk about a wall. We're going to talk about Nehemiah. So if you brought your Bibles this morning, uh, dust off that first section that hasn't been open in a while, you know, the, the pages that are still stuck together like they came from the factory. If you look deep into the Old Testament, you will find the memoirs, the writings of a man named Nehemiah. Let's just dive right in. Nehemiah chapter 1. The, let's read the first four verses. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from, going, uh, from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the, provident, uh, to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble. And what's the word? Disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when Nehemiah heard this, he sat down and what? Wept. In fact, for days, Nehemiah mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was so distraught about the wall being torn down. Some commentators say that, that he fasted and mourned and wept for four months straight. Have you ever got that phone call in the middle of the night? Or have you ever been in a situation where someone approaches you and, and before they even say a word, you can, you can tell by the look on their face that something's wrong? Have you ever been in the doctor's office when the report's not good? Do you guys remember the emotion of the moment right before you get the most devastating news of your life? This is the report that Nehemiah gets in the first four verses of his memoir. It's, it's, it's where our story begins 
And, and the, the question should immediately arise in our, our, our mind of why is this such bad news? Why is Nehemiah so devastated about walls being torn down in Jerusalem? Why does he mourn and fast for literally for months? What's so important about the wall. And Nehemiah is unique because it starts with us expecting, uh, he expects his readers to already know everything that happened before this report comes in, before the report of bad news, the worst news imaginable reaches Nehemiah's ears. And Nehemiah doesn't give, at least in his writing, he doesn't give any backstory. He doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't give any context uh, in German in theological world. They call it Sitzenleben. It means situation in life. So Nehemiah Nehemiah just begins this story with bad news, but he doesn't tell us why it's bad news. Are you with me? So let me, uh, uh, today we're going to talk a lot about context of Nehemiah. Uh, I want to address this question of why is Nehemiah weeping and mourning, and, and why does he weep and mourn and grieve so emotionally and for so long? Why is he so distraught over news of a wall being torn down? And, and I'm going to try to create a, a, a picture. I'm going to create a hypothetical situation to try, to try to help us understand the Nehemiah's context. So hypothetically, just, just imagine with me that America, the United States of America, is at war again. Okay? Uh, uh, and this time, uh, I'll just pick a, a random country. We're at war with New Zealand. Okay? except New Zealand has somehow managed to develop a new military technology that completely disables every one of our military technologies. And so tiny little peaceful New Zealand filled with Kiwis, they land in California on our west coast and they begin to invade. And at every battle, at every stop, because of the new technology they've developed, they completely and utterly wipe out the U.S. military. Every time we try to stop them at every battle, at every place we say they will go no further, they crush our defenses. They completely and utterly annihilate them. And as they move from city to city, beginning in California, they tear down and destroy and burn every house, every school, every city, every government office. Anything and everything with the name America on it is utterly and completely destroyed. And they start in California, and they start to move east. Pretty soon they're in Texas. We thought they would be a stronghold. There's a million guns in Texas. Surely they would be able to stand up. But the the tenacious Kiwis completely wipe out Texas, Arkansas, Ohio, Tennessee, they move east all the way. They move south from Florida, and then they move, south from, uh, they move north from Florida and south from Maine. The entire American population is being killed and destroyed. The remnant of everything that is the United States of America has one last stand. There is one place that those who survive the remnant go to one last place. It is the last hope for the United States of America. It's a city called Washington, D.C. Are you with me? (laughs) Some of you are hoping for this to happen. That makes me nervous. Hypothetically, and as the tenacious Kiwis attack and conquer the only people left alive, uh, the only Americans left alive retreat to the city of Washington, D.C. And the leader of the, the New Zealand army, 
completely surrounds the city of Washington, D.C., but instead of, of coming in and attacking and killing everyone, they simply form a blockade around the city of Washington, D.C. and wait. They block all food, all water, all supplies, and the New Zealand uh, army, they simply stop every, anything and everything from going in and out of Washington, D.C., and they just stop uh, all food and water for two years. And for two years, the people that are left in Washington starve to death. They claw each other and kill each other for scraps of food. And finally, when there is no food and no water, when, when the famine that is D.C. has reached its pinnacle after two years, the, the New Zealand army receives the order and they come in and they tear down all the defenses inside of Washington. They march down the, the, the main malls and every monument, every symbol, every flag, anything representing America and its history is completely and utterly destroyed. Every landmark, the Capitol building, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, all destroyed. Every flag is burned. Every piece of currency, anything having any semblance of, of the United States of America, every t-shirt, every highway sign, every library is completely destroyed. Now, a few people have survived. There remain still a few Americans. Most, uh, very, a very few remain. Most have been killed. And the few remaining, uh, instead of being uh, tortured and killed, they become exiles. In fact, they become slave servants. The, the, the New Zealand army, instead of killing this remnant, decides to take this remnant, put, put us on boats, and ship us back to New Zealand where we will become slaves. Why do this? Why, uh, why wouldn't they uh, just, I know we're in a deep hypothetical situation, but why not just kill all the Americans? Why take them back to New Zealand? Say it loud. Because to be a slave in a foreign country is a fate worse, worse than death. See how this works? It's a greater disgrace than death. Uh, as they take the few remaining Americans back to their home country, really what they're attacking is our national identity itself in an attempt to reprogram the remnant. Are you with me? Are you following? How long would it take before those few remaining Americans become Kiwis? How long before those few, the remnant, how long would it take 
before those few, how many generations would it take before those few remaining Americans be, begin to see themselves as they, as they eat New, New Zealand food and embrace New Zealand culture and dress and, and are completely immersed into the customs and the clothing and the songs and history of New Zealand? How long before their identity as Americans how many generations would it take before their identity as Americans is completely wiped out? How long do you think it would take? Now imagine the remnant who now live in New Zealand of what's left of America. Now imagine after living there for 70 years, living as an exile, now imagine those rem those, the remnant the few remaining who, who maybe even have some sort of memory of what was and what used to be and what could have been. Maybe they've been told stories. Maybe some, wouldn't the stories that, are, that they tell each other about the United States of America, wouldn't they just seem like myths, like fairy tales? Wouldn't they? Now imagine those remaining after 70 years were given the opportunity to go back to the United States or what was the United States of America and start over. Are they more American at this point or are they more Kiwi? Which do you think? They've been given the chance to go back. Would you, would you take it? And if you had the chance to go back, remember everything you know has been completely and utterly destroyed in that place. Many of that are the remnant weren't even born there. They've been there seven generations, right? They wouldn't know what to do or where to go or how to start. If, but if you were sent back, where would you go? Where, where would be the place if we were sent back to, okay, we want you to go back and, and you have the chance to rebuild the United States of America, where might you start? Maybe that place of the last battle, the symbol of your country, Maybe you would go to Washington, D.C. I don't know. Now imagine you, you have the chance to go back, and when you get back to what was the United States of America, you get back to what was 70 years ago, Washington, D.C., and when you get there, there's not just you know empty ground, but there's actually people living there now. And those people have been living there for generations and you say, hey, we're here to rebuild the United States of America. And they say, well, what's that? And then they say, we've lived here for generations. We don't want you to rebuild the United States of America. How would you feel then? So this is a little bit of what Nehemiah is feeling. I know that's a big hypothetical long story. But if you look in 1 Kings, or I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 25, here's, here's, the, here's the, the build up, the context for Nehemiah. The king in uh, 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 Jerusalem at this time is a bad king, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. It's the last stronghold of the people of Israel. The Babylonians have come in and completely wiped out the entire people of Israel, driving the remnant to one central place, to one place, the place of their identity, to one city. 
and King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, instead of just marching in and wiping out all the people of Jerusalem, all of God's people, all of the Israelites, he just builds a blockade around the city. And for two years, no food or water goes in or out. And he watches as the remnant of Israel starve to death. This actually happened. Second Kings talks about mothers being so hungry that they cook and eat their own children. He starves the people to death. And in chapters, uh, chapter 25 of 2 Kings, verses 9 and 10, look what it says, or verse 9 through 11. Go back one slide. It says, after the, kind of the, the famine was over, after he'd waited two years, he burned down the temple of the Lord. All right, so do you remember what the temple symbolized for the people of Israel, for the people of the Old Testament? The temple is the house of God, represented his presence with the people of God. It was the symbol of their national identity. And he burned down the temple of the, ro- the Lord, the royal place, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. Everything that said Israelite on it was completely and utterly destroyed. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Are you catching up? Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, then took as exiles the rest of the people who remained the remnant in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. The people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, are a hair's breadth away from being wiped out completely. Are you with me? Are you following? The people are taken into exile, and this is where we get the stories of, uh, do you remember the story of Queen Esther? Where is Queen Esther? Remember, she's not in Israel. Where is she? She's in Babylon. It's also where we get the story of, of Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. That's right. That's the story. That's what my black preacher friend always called him, so I don't know. Where are, you remember this story, Daniel and his three friends, they're taken. They are exiles. Do you remember this? They're taken from their home, from their country, from their identity, and a whole new identity is forced on them until one day news comes down after 70 years of living in exile. News comes that the people of Israel can return home. Look what it says in the book of Ezra. In Ezra, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, really, uh, I know I don't want to over-confuse you, but Ezra and Nehemiah probably were one book at one point in time, memoirs from both Ezra and Nehemiah, and so their stories overlap a whole bunch. But the very beginning of Ezra says this in chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, so the Babylonians are no longer in control, uh, but now the Persians have come in. And King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus, which is an important theme in the Old Testament. You see God stirring king's hearts to bring about his will all the time. It happens with Esther. It happens with Daniel. It happens in all these different situations. It's going to happen with Nehemiah too. 
God stirred the heart of this Persian king to put this proclamation in writing and send it out to his kingdom. Remember this. All of Israel that is left are exiles. They've been living for 70 years under Persian rule with Persian identity. And God stirs the king of Persia and puts this message on his heart. Look what he writes. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at where? Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And any of you who are his people, you get to go back. Any that remain can go back and rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. God really moved in his heart, right? This is a Persian king, pagan king, pagan gods. And yet something caused him to release that remnant, to go back and build another temple, to begin to rebuild a city, to find an identity that has been lost. He even goes so far, if you read uh, Ezra, and I encourage you to do this, he even goes so far as to when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple of God, remember there's elements in the temple. You guys remember uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that kind of, like there's stuff in the temple. There's an ark and there's lampstands and there's tables and there's all of these different things. All of those things are stolen and put in pagan temples. But King Cyrus is so adamant about Israel going back and rebuilding that he gives them back all the elements of the temple, most of which were made of gold. Pretty impressive, right? Shesh Bazar is the first to go. He leads the first group of people. He's followed by Zerubbabel, who works to rebuild the temple. And then also comes Ezra. Ezra is this scribe who brings the word of God back to Jerusalem. It starts to come back. And then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they, they begin to speak to this remnant. This is their time period. Are you with me? Jerusalem is in rubble, but people are starting to come back and they're starting to do things. And Haggai and Zechariah write to encourage the work that's going on. You're back. You had a chance to go back. You have a chance to rebuild, but things aren't going so well. In fact, Haggai writes to the people, now the people of Israel have been back. The few have been back in Jerusalem. They've gone back to rebuild, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild everything. And they've been living there for 20 years. And look what Haggai writes to them. He said, the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while the temple you were sent to rebuild lies in ruins? You see, the people have gone back, and they've come back to Jerusalem, but now they're not Israelites anymore. What are they? They're more Persian. They're more Babylonian than they are Israelites. They don't know God. They don't know his word. They don't know why his temple is important. And when they get back to what was once their place, what do they find living there? Other people. And are these other people excited that the Israelites have returned? No. In fact, they fight them. And they go to war. And there becomes this one point in, in the history of all of this that Ezra and his followers, they kind of start to build the temple and they kind of start to build the walls. And the local people don't like it. And so what do they do? They come and tear the walls down. 
again. And this is where Nehemiah begins. Let's read it again. See if it makes more sense this time. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. I was at the fortress of Susa. I was not in Jerusalem. I was with the Persian king in exile, way far away. You know who he is now, right? Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived back from where? Jerusalem. They've just been sent back to start rebuilding this whole thing. And I asked them, how is it going? And what did they say? Go to that next slide. Things are not going well. Those who return to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem that they kind of sort of started to rebuild has been torn down and the gates have been burned again. Now do you get it? Do you feel it now? And when Nehemiah heard it, heard that his people had a chance, heard that after 70 years of waiting and hoping and praying, Finally, they had a chance to go back and rebuild, to reclaim some part of their identity. And when he hears of the horrible oppression and that the walls are torn down, do you understand why he cries? Do you understand why he cries and mourns for four months? Because Nehemiah knows the truth, that the people of God are a hair's breadth away from being totally extinct. They're going to go the way of the dodo. They are hanging on by a thread. And Nehemiah is lost in grief because he knows how close they are. They're on the brink, on the very edge. But Nehemiah also knows only God can bring them back. Are you with me? Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah means Jehovah comforts. Nehemiah's story begins <laughs> at the worst place ever. And yet Nehemiah, as you see over, as we study this over the next couple of weeks, you will see that Nehemiah, he is the, he is the Abraham Lincoln of the Old Testament. You guys respect Abraham Lincoln? Nehemiah is the Winston Churchill. He's strategic. He's the Winston Churchill of the Old Testament. And Nehemiah, he is also the General George Patton of the Old Testament. So if you've got any kind of recollection of those guys, then, then you can start to picture this guy, Nehemiah. I told the worship team, I said, if Nehemiah was running for president, hands down, he would be elected. <laughs> Nehemiah is this incredibly, like, no-nonsense guy, very strategic and thorough. He's full of tenacity and drive and vision and motivation and intention and integrity and leadership. He's incredibly adaptable. He's going to make incredible sacrifices for his cause. At one point in time, his goal is to rebuild this wall of Jerusalem, to reestablish the identity of God's people in this godless place. And he's going to be attacked. He's going to be, all of these distractions are going to surround him. And Nehemiah is the book. In one scene, you're going to see Nehemiah himself, the leader. With one hand, he's working on the wall. And with one hand, he's holding a sword to fight off his enemies who are trying to stop him. Nehemiah is the one who, at the, in chapter 8, says these iconic words. I know you have heard them before. He says, 
the joy of the Lord will be my strength. Are you with me? Have you developed some curiosity about Nehemiah and his story? About his role and his position? A man that is filled, like I said, with tenacity and vision, motivation, an incredible leader. But most importantly, Nehemiah is a man of incredible faith. You see that he cries and weeps and he mourns for months. And then he prays. And next week, I've got a friend that's going to come and teach us. And, and in chapter 1, most of chapter 1 is Nehemiah's prayer for the future. It's a prayer of repentance. He prays for the people and their failures, but he prays for God to find a way, to make a way, to use him, to rebuild and restore. Nehemiah is a book of action wrapped in prayer. So, I know that's a lot of backstory, but it's important that you understand who Nehemiah is. Are, are you at least a little bit curious most people, when I talk about the Old Testament, they just get afraid and say, I don't go there. You know, it's like the other side of the tracks. We just don't go there. You know, like it's just this place, like it, it can be confusing, but I hope to, I hope to kind of draw some intrigue out of you. Um, one final thing, and, and worship team, you guys, if y'all want to go ahead and come up, that's great. We're going to have a time of communion in just a minute. But, but before I wrap up, I want, to, I want to talk about who is the book of Nehemiah for? Who is he writing for? If you can make your way through the rubble. Um, Nehemiah is for every person that's been lost. Nehemiah is for the person who wakes up with that phone call late at night. Nehemiah is, is written to encourage and challenge and to, and to lift up to, to everyone who has been in crisis. Can you think of those moments in your life? Moments where everything that you thought was solid and secure and ready to go has all come crashing down. Nehemiah is for those whose bank accounts are wiped out when the stock market crashes. Nehemiah is, is for those whose, who, whose, when their whole identity has been built up around this central idea, maybe for you it's been a job or a career. This is who I am, and then suddenly that job or that career is taken from you. Are you with me? Nehemiah is, is for those who, of you who have received the worst possible news imaginable. We've had people in our own family that received the phone call. We've, we've got that phone call late at night that there's been a miscarriage. Maybe it's been a death. Maybe it's been a loss of job. Nehemiah is for every single person that, that has felt all I want to do at this moment in this space is just lay down and cry. Because everything that I valued, everything that I held on to, everything that I thought was important has now been gone. It's been wiped away. It's been taken away. And Nehemiah is going to help us see how to start over. 
when the walls have been torn down, Nehemiah is going to show us how to rebuild. When everything we held on to and valued has been lost, Nehemiah is again going to help us return to God. Are you with me? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Nehemiah. I pray that um, you, would, you would stir some, some passion. You, you would stir at, at, least, at, at least some curiosity uh, in Nehemiah. In, in our world, and our culture, Father God, it's so hard to understand what's going on in the Old Testament. And it's, it's much easier for us just to kind of discount it and to focus on other things. But Father God, we see, like if we look closely, like your son, Jesus Christ, walks through the pages of Nehemiah. We see him right there, so ever-present present in grief, but, but also present in this, this place of repentance, present in this place of, of rebuilding and restoring, present in hope. Father God, right now, some of, the, some of the folks I know here in our church have felt what Nehemiah felt. Their world has collapsed. The things that, that they've put their trust in and hope in have fallen apart, and they don't know what to do. And so, Father God, we thank you for Nehemiah, who gives us this incredible example, how you use him to be this example, to help us return, to restart, to repent, to rejoice, to rebuild, to return to you. So Father God, thank you for your, your word as it's delivered through Nehemiah. May, it's, uh, may his passion and his drive be an example to us. Father God, I pray for this church and for its future as we work to rebuild your kingdom in this place. Father God, let it be an example to us. Father, we enter into this time of communion. We recognize your son, Jesus, his life, his death, his sacrifice, but mostly his resurrection, this incredible symbol of hope and future out of death, out of the worst case scenario comes life. And so, Father God, as we remember Jesus' story, we remember Nehemiah's story, we remember the sacrifice of your son as we enter into this time of communion together. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,